After 12 episodes with Tari, uh, I think it's fair that I do something approaching a proper introduction. Karin is a, uh, a family friend. She is a person for whom I have the utmost respect. She is a specialist in literature and translation. Um, she studied these things. She studied also Germanistics. She has worked in a professional and academic capacity for more than 50 years, um, and I'm underestimating that uh, amount of time. Uh, she has made contributions to um, literature, translations specifically between German and English. And on top of all of that, she has worked um, with Penn, uh, Penn Germany, especially Penn International. Um, and she has worked with a, a number of writers who were persecuted, hunted, um, and she has sought with her teams, of course, uh, to provide these people with a voice, um, exposure uh, of the material, and at the same time to protect them, to enable them to continue using their voice. Uh, and so all of these conversations that uh, I have had with Karlin uh, come with the background of her having achieved all of this, uh, having lived through the Second World War, having grown up in the post-war years and having really pushed herself um, into what was at the time pretty much a very much male-dominated uh, academic sector and thrived there uh, and so it comes as no surprise that um, she is somebody with a powerful voice uh, great insight um, and continues to be an absolute inspiration to me um, and I thank any of you who have taken the time to listen to my podcast with Kali I've thanked her repeatedly i could not thank her enough um and i hope you enjoy number 13 with karin which actually begins uh, i had to cut off a little bit of the beginning because um of the way we just jumped into it and i was taken by surprise um but that's also an opportunity for me to present this introduction so enjoy now i was very interested in the uh perspectives of reality because every one of us has a different reality we know now that reality is not one big truth it is individual and it depends on a lot of things um my world is different from yours and our world is can only come together and develop uh, through communication and this is why communication, wherever we go, whatever we do, is one of the most important things. Um, no one has a grip on all total rea reality. Um, we have to talk. We have to accept the other reality as it is told to us. And this is particularly 
difficult in times of emergencies and crises as the crisis in Afghanistan is right now. Uh, nobody can relate to us exactly what is going on there in terms of facts, in terms of emotions, and in terms of under understanding, because um, it is piecemeal, mm. first of all, in the reporting and piecemeal in the way we accept things, because we cannot relate to some of the information directly, emotionally yeah. or intellectually. Yeah. Can I also just jump in there? Because an, another point that you, is, is relevant to the, the exact same point that you're making, but from a slightly different perspective, is time. You know, at the moment, we keep on, as in we, we read about this in the media, we are focused on 20 years. Yes. We keep coming back to 20 years. But the story of Afghanistan did not start 20 years ago. No. Nor, nor did the story of interaction between these Western countries and Afghanistan begin 20 years ago either. We have Correct. to go a lot further back. Um, and this is a part of what you were saying, which I think is very relevant about communication. It's that um, we have been limited in the amount of information that we have been told as to how far back this level of distrust exists between the West and Afghanistan, because we haven't been educated properly on the history of our involvement there. Um. No, we haven't been we haven't been educated, but uh, I think you and I have educated ourselves to mm. uh, a certain degree, not to a encompassing degree, but so that we have a better grip on what is going on there and uh, knowing that we don't know everything. Mm. Most people think they know everything. Um, <laughs> I think um, our reality or, or uh, communication of reality depends on um, our pre-knowledge of the situation in Afghanistan. Let's stay with Afghanistan for the moment, mm -hmm. which is which differs. Uh, we don't know too much about the people in Afghanistan. It's not it's it's a multifaceted society. Um, how many Afghans have we known? A handful, 10, 15, mm. if any. And um, we don't know about the, or we have not necessarily experienced the set of the situation of occupation of a country. Um, and we have not all of us experienced war. So the empathy is maybe there, but the knowledge is very, very limited. And in terms of these factual lack, lacks of experience and knowledge, there are other facts that precondition our understanding, and that is our own bringing up, our education, our interest, our character, our openness to the world, and again, our education. And this is um, a very, very different idea in, in total of knowing what reality is. We all don't know. We know of the little bit of pieces of reality that um, we can um, discover or um, research or question or 
relate to or not relate to. Mm. So it's a it's a very very tricky situation. Yeah, and and also I mean one of the important words that you mentioned there is perhaps a, a word which many people having listened to the, those sentences wouldn't really recall with any sort of great importance, but that's multifaceted. You know, yes. we 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 tend to simplify things, and this is something I was reflecting on in, in my preparation earlier. We tend to simplify things because mathematics teaches us that there is a need to simplify. And indeed, in communication, um, we're also told, don't overcomplicate the message, make it easy to understand. Yeah, however, the world itself doesn't operate along human design. No. Things happen that we cannot simplify. We cannot um, put it into a, a simple coded structure for everybody to understand. And one of those elements is the fact, exactly as you said, multifaceted. But even if you pick up one of those multifaceted elements, it itself is also multifaceted. So, I mean, for example, we talk subjectively about the Taliban and we consider the Taliban to be one participant within the process, but it's not a single entity either. No. So, I mean, Nothing this is a is. part of, yeah, this is a part of what you mean when you say multifaceted. The, the truth is our limit to completely un un understand when you say multifaceted, exactly how far that extends. To everything and um, through the ages. Uh, it's nothing that we can learn to bring all of it together and come to one picture of reality for one person, let alone for several people or uh, for, for the whole world. Um, I was looking at the pictures from Afghanistan and I had a, a second film in my head and that those were the pictures of the Yugoslavian war. When I was sitting in front of, the, of a screen and lis listening, hearing, hearing the bombs, um, in a way trembling, um, because I had been through something similar, but I, that was past. This was present. I could not participate in the present. I could empathize with the presence because I'd known similar feelings, but it was, I was sheltered through the screen, through the television or, or uh, screen or the glass. It could not totally reach me. And I think our world today is, um, surrounded by screens and we are separated from another by screens the screens and the idea of uh, war or occupation or um, death is all around us and it is past present and future at the same time when i was uh, looking at the pictures from the Yugoslavian war, um, I came to a very little poem, but it's very, very tight, but that's the way I think and I write. And I read it now. This war, as every other, cries experience, screams visions, 
on a world long past. Projects an agony fulfilled on pictures, in pictures on a future screen. This being together while being apart through the screen connects uh, present, past and future. And this is what is coming back uh, to me now when, when I look at what is going on in Afghanistan. And it, it pains me no end. And I, I sit here and I don't know what to do. Mm. And this is the worst part. Um, we can, what can we do? We can inform people as far as we know ourselves which is what the, these brave journalists are doing who are still there, or the um, NGOs who are still there. Um, but we ourselves don't know that much. So the only thing we can pass on is a call for empathy mm. and for education. Yeah, I mean, when when situations reach this point, we have already passed the opportunity of having a positive impact upon the current situation. Right. So uh, essentially, the message is we have to use this opportunity to make sure that the next one doesn't develop along the same lines. And that's where your education comes in. That's where the empathy comes in. This is where the learning from experiences comes in. However, as you have just done yourselves, yourself, excuse me, you have drawn uh, a very, very close um, similarity with what happened in the former Yugoslavia. Um, and then we can also go back, indeed, and draw uh, a similar uh, line through the Vietnam War. Yes, and or the Nazi War, indeed, the German War. Indeed. Uh, and, and what this tells us is that all of these opportunities where we could have sat down and learnt and studied what we did wrong, we're all missed, uh, especially by those who are decision makers or who then became decision makers. And so, you know, history repeats itself as a result of us not having learnt our lessons. Right. And this is uh, what also pains me because you hear being child of the Second World War, um, that to know about Nazism is passé. It's too long ago. We can't empathize. We, we, we don't want to know anything about that. Um, that's, um, we have um, compensated and recompensated for our mistakes, uh, or even our not our own mistakes, but the, the mistakes of our forebears. And uh, this shoving experiences, painful experiences that we could learn from in the background and out of our mind is, is what is the worst one can do. And I think the uh, knowledge about history, which I wasn't aware when I was 18 or 19 to that degree, is the most valuable um, experience of and knowledge of uh, being a human being at whatever time. 
Yeah, I mean, there is um, a, a wonderful quotation. I think it's from Truman. I could be wrong, but I think it's from Truman. And he says, the only thing new in this world is the history you do not yet know. Um, yes. and, and, and I think that covers so many different uh, subjects. And, and I think it's what you also uh, allude to yourself. Um, the only thing I would add to your uh, point on responsibility is some uh, elements within the story of the Second World War, or at least within the story of 1933 to 1945. Um, some elements, some entities have taken responsibility, but not all. Um, and, and I would say that a part of the reason behind the the sudden, I would say, increase um, in right-wing movements and perhaps also the re-energization of right-wing sentiments is down to the fact that not every element uh, was punished after the Second World War. Some were allowed to thrive, uh, albeit under different guises. Um, we should not at any point think now that Nazism is a thing of the past, uh, because it's it's still with us, uh, and it's still very much involved in decision making processes, and this is worrying. I would I would hazard to say, in very many countries, particularly in the West, yes, there's uh, somebody came up with with a percentage and said every country that uh, is was involved in the Second World War um, has a retainer of 20% of uh, not, uh, of those inclined to national socialism. And this may be true. Mm. And it's scary. Absolutely. And um, but also on every side, you know, we're not talking about perhaps a side that lost or a side that, um, you know, was, was a partial participant. We're talking about every participant. Right. That's what I meant. Yes. England and America, uh, France, Wherever you look, not just Germany and and um, Italy and and uh, Austria, Hungary, Austria. Yeah. right? Yes. Yeah, but absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the big problem. Uh, there was another question uh, I had in mind when I went through, mulled through these uh, the topics. Um, I know little about your experiences. I know a little about your world. Mm -hmm. um, so we turn the tables now. <laughs> Please do so, yeah. And um, uh, my first question is, what is the most vital uh, influence in your life? Oh, yeah, that, I mean, that's an interesting one. I, I would actually say um, I would have to put in a very, very wide ranging topic because uh, it's impossible to come back to one individual perspective or point. But I would say books um, and stories. Um, and I would say this because at different stages in my life, uh, I have read books which have influenced me and their their influences have um, developed and grown and yet not necessarily changed. And I'll give you one one example is when I was about, uh, I think 12, 12 or 13 years old, my dad put uh, an Armenian story into my hands. It was over four books and it was called Zartonk, which in Armenian means the awakening. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is a, a story penned by a person whose writing name was Malchas, who lived during the First World War and, um, and, and throughout the, the period of genocide. And um, he, he wrote this wonderful story of romance and revolution, um, the growth and the growth and birth of identity within um, a, a, a nation which had been persecuted by the by the Ottoman Empire for centuries. Um, and this awakened within me not only a, a, a greater awareness of the history, which was a part of my identity, um, but also of social movement, the need for um, people to come together, the the need for cooperation, the need for understanding, empathy, um, faith, belief, um, but also so many different factors, for example, political structures, um, centralization or decentralization, um, socialism or, or, or liberalism and capitalism. Um, you know, a, a lot of these uh, are, are sort of you know, ideas and ideologies which really were focused at the turn of the century. I mean, I, I do believe, for example, in um, in Vienna, um, there were many, many cafes where lots and lots of individuals would, you know, philosophers and these intelligent people would meet together uh, to debate uh, the, the growing political ideologies of, of the time. And even before before this, uh, and so you know, reading about this, these different chapters, these different uh, time periods, you know, it, it really took my mind into the the black and white world that I had always seen these times to be, um, and I realised actually they are far more colourful than I had initially imagined them to be. Yes. Yes. Very true. I think I I can totally uh, agree with you because my my first uh, really factual information came from books, and I was a, an avid reader. The uh, typical uh, light under the, under the bed cover until <laughs> five o'clock in the morning when I was eight or nine or ten or fifteen, sixteen, whatever. I read everything. And the strange thing is um, you can get a lot of things out of bad books as well as out of good books. As a young kid, you uh, read what you think is interesting or what you can put your hands on. And you get a lot of uh, information from not necessarily uh, good books or well-written books or uh, books written by um non right rightist people mm-hmm. if that's what you have in your house we didn't so i was lucky i was mm-hmm. lucky in many respects um i read what was there what my mother and her sisters were exchanging books from the library and if i could sneak one or two under my bed cover i would read one during the night to put it back where it was supposed to be the next morning. Um, And many of these (laughs) books really, really um, stayed with me, not in terms of the characters or the uh, exact plot, 
But what they said to me then in terms of what life could be, what life should be, what a human being should be, and what a human being should not be. And that that's an asset that is expendable into all directions. Mm. So I've, I've stayed with, with uh, reading uh, to the point where right now I, I have to stop reading as much as I'm, I'm reading right now because um, it's overwhelming to read too much. But at the same time, uh, it's, still, it's still my lifeline. Mm. And, and also just to throw in that um, the reason why we could so seamlessly move from uh, Afghanistan to books and, and uh, so on is because the topic is that we are broadly discussing, as you alluded to earlier, is perspectives of reality. reality right. But, but also what, what you also wanted to throw in, I believe, by turning the tables um, is because you you have this uh, very nice uh, sort of subheading my world your world our world through communication um, and so therefore I, I i feel that you know everything that we have said really does essentially fit into this perspectives of reality as you you know as you wrote down exactly now this i'm uh, not just because of the topic but i was very curious of also your most impressive or the the experience that impressed you most in your life mm. yeah I, again i i'm yeah because i haven't had the chance perhaps to think about it in any particular detail i'm what i've recognized is the the movement of emotion um, I, I always, for example, remember my, my dad as being an extremely tough uh, guy. He grew up on the streets of Beirut um, and where everybody was basically armed, all of his friends too. But he was the one guy who refused to carry a weapon, for example. So I, I really always kind of had him um, as a tough guy uh, as I was growing up. And, and he, was, he was a tough disciplinarian as well. Um, and I do remember watching um, a movie, I think it was on a Sunday morning, and he was crying his eyes out. <laughs> that was yeah. going to be my, my next story about my father. As, yeah, but as a, yeah. uh, not a one-upmanship, but uh, a parallel. Yeah. Because my father also was relatively strict. Um, not always, but... Um, Disciplinarian, yes. Hard toward the outside. People were afraid of him. Uh, we weren't because we had seen the other side, which was the kindness, the, the vulnerability of my father. And um, my example was the same uh, situation. <laughs> we went to a movie and I must have been about 14 and we saw the original German version of uh, The Parent Trap by Erich Kästner, Das Doppelte Lottchen. Wonderful little film. Uh, and of course, at the end, you kind of choke even as a 14-year-old. 
And I saw my father was shaking his head. He wasn't shaking his head because he didn't like it, but he wanted to get the tears out of his eyes. <laughs> so you see the parallel. Absolutely. And and also when I mentioned the the Armenian book before Zartong, a part of it is also down to this because I, when my dad used to read, because he read this, he must have read this same story, I don't know how many times, but when he used to read, he used to read the inner session. So all four books had to be read one after the other. So he would come home from work, place himself on the sofa, as was his want and still is. Um, and would there thereafter be, you know, incommunicado because he he would not be in, uh, interrupted for anything other less important than dinner. Um, and what, what also was impressed and remains impressed within my mind is how I used to watch him reading this book and turning the pages with one hand and with the other hand, wiping his eyes of the tears uh, that dropped onto his cheeks. And so therefore. It was, you know, I was always intrigued as a child. What was it in this story now, that made my dad cry? Um, and I eventually found out because I, you know, and, and I shared similar experiences. I remember reading it, the, this book on the train, for example, in London uh, and crying uh, quite openly on the, on the train. Or I, I also used to read it while walking to school. And a couple of times I almost walked into the street um, because I had this book. Um, in my hands while while walking, which is I would never advise that. So if anybody's listening to this, please don't do it. Um, but yeah, so an extension of, of, of your, or perhaps putting your two questions together would be would be that. So, yeah, the, the toughness on the outside, as you say, and yet that softness inside. Yes. Um, and, and I think that's also been that's also been um, an, an education for me because I don't want to have that toughness outside. At least not anymore. I, I I don't want to have a shell which hides the the empathy, the affection, um, the warmth that I may have inside. Why, why don't I simply just show that warmth? Yes. There's no need to hide it, is there? Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing about my father was he I know he he loved us and he made things possible for us that weren't possible for other people uh, within their family. Um, But the the eye opener was when he broke all of his defenses down with his grandchildren. Hmm. And I, I, I see that in my brother in, in uh, as well, who never was a hard uh, person, but uh, he had some mannerisms of my father. Um, the way he is uh, living with his five grandchildren is wonderful. Mm. And the contact and the, uh, maybe not the communication, but the being together and doing things together. They're not, none of them is, is a big talker about uh, feelings or actions and so on. They're they're um, all more or less uh, introverted. Mm. But uh, you see it when when you see them together. The bonded the bond is there and the, it, it will never break. And what makes you different? Because you you're so open to talk, to communicate, to 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 explain. 
there is a difference there, isn't there? Because not not every person uh, wants to tell their story or wants to share their views or their experiences, good or bad. Um, of course, I've I've not uh, talked about everything that I could have talked up about and kept a lot of private things private. But I learned when I first left the family uh, nest and went uh, when I was 12 to a, a summer camp where I had to res- had to take pick up responsibility and I learned to communicate with kids with with uh, uh, with those who were in in um, responsible for our uh, well-being and our uh, education during those five weeks um, because it was so different from from home. I could always talk with my mother um, about anything. But um, the rest of the family was giving me guidance so that I thought mm, I better not talk about all the things I that are going on in my mind. So. Uh, this first experience at the age of 12 and then the age of 6, 15, 16, the four months at a British school was the same eye-opener, the same um, um, opening up of myself. When I got the report card from uh, Newcastle, um, it said something like, she's very sociable. I didn't know what that was until I checked it and got some information and I was that was the proudest I was I I didn't care about the good grades or whatever but I was sociable Um, so I wore that as a crown and that crown got me a scholarship to the United States Rice (laughs) University because uh, I was bored in in just doing translation at uh, Heidelberg so I asked my law professor, uh, isn't there a chance of getting someplace? And he said, we have a student at, at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Uh, Rice University um, just changed from Rice Institute. It was a very, very highly acclaimed engineering school. But now they also want to go into the humanities and they have a fantastic program. Uh, why don't you apply? It was the only application I sent out. Hmm. And I got the scholarship from the women's college for half of all costs for room and board. And I'm absolutely sure that this, uh, she's very sociable, got me that scholarship. Hmm. It's also, it's interesting because, I mean, the timing of these um these events in I, I just listened to a podcast from the BBC and the subject matter was essentially two uh, female researchers. I think they're from Suffolk University and they they, they essentially came across the uh, files of something called the mass research project. And they they looked in particular at uh, in 1937, the essays of 12 and 13 year old girls from um, Bolton. 
and and the reason why they focused on these particular um, essays, uh, according to the podcast, was because in in all of the cases, the names were included on the essays, which is apparently quite strange for this mass research project because they they tended to um, you know remove any kind of uh, identifiable features. Mm-hmm. And one of the issues which was particularly of interest to them was the response to the essays, the marking, which commented on uh, observations of the the girls, but also their essays. And um, I mean, if you, I'll, I'll put a link into the to, to this particular BBC po- uh, podcast as well in the description because mm-hmm. it's really interesting. Thank you. Um, but how, for example, the girl, one observer said that a particular girl. She focused too much on boys. Yeah, this is 1937, 12 and 13 year old girls. Uh, another observer said um, uh, she, she lives for the cinema. She wants to, you know, she, she just she wants to go to cinema every day of the week, um, and and it's too much. You know, these kinds of observations were made of these uh, 12 and 13 year old girls. Um, and so when I when you talk about how. Uh, your report card focused on the positive side of your sociability. I'm kind of because obviously this was after the war that you went. So I, I, I'm, I'm him sitting here thinking to myself, was there such a shift in the I suppose 15 years between these two approaches? One where uh, people are openly critical of uh, young 12-year-old females, and then after the war, a slightly more positive approach. Is it purely subjective? Were you just simply lucky? Or on the other hand, which is extremely possible, you just had such a positive effect on the people around you. And they had to say they had to say how so how wonderful this girl is. I had um I had the wonderful experience of finding very close friends very soon. And um they made it easier for me because all of a sudden, I this was 1954. No, I'm sorry, 56. Um, not 10 years after the war, and I was in a school, in a girls' school, um, where there were at least 30, 40% of Jewish girls. They accepted me. There was not one time they called me a Nazi, not one time they excluded me or maybe they they looked me over but not in a way that discriminated against me so i i was always lucky i must say i've never been called a nazi by anybody in any country and uh, that relief. is fun that's yes. a relief <laughs> it is it is because uh, all my friends wherever they went they came back and said, you know, why do they call me Nazi? I'm not a Nazi. Mm. And I just looked at them and I, I, most of the times I didn't say that I was never called that. But um, I don't know, maybe um, I was not uh, aggressive as some of the kids were. Uh, aggression in a, in a woman was um, looked on as... A German girl was looked on as either defensive or coming from a family with aggression. Um, aggression against against uh, 
well, I wouldn't wouldn't have gone to England if if I had had any qualms about uh, wanting to make me myself feel comfortable there. Yeah. I mean, I, I would also observe if if it's uh, possible to say that you you reached a conclusion way before I reached, uh, which was essentially that. Uh, there was no need to show a hard outer shell. If you showed people straight away that you are uh, welcoming, you are warm, affectionate, um, that they would naturally find no reason to reject you. And there's a difference between not wanting to be hard on the outside uh, from an experience of a young man or a young boy Mm-hmm. And the the non plus for a young girl of fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, be a nice girl. Mm. You know, so this was already in in entrained in and in, ingrained in uh, me as a female that um, don't get aggressive. Don't be aggressive. I could not defend myself if I was attacked. And I learned that in when I was in my 60s to not fight back, but to protect myself and respond to attacks from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the negative thing, I think, of growing up a girl in, in a small town uh, in the post-war era in uh, a relatively settled family. Okay, during, after the war, nobody had anything, but my grandmother had had a big house and it was bombed four weeks before the war was over. And so, you know, that is the history, of, that's part of the history of the family. So um, I was, again, lucky. I came from... Uh, at that point, uh, family just as poor as everybody else, but with the prospect of uh, of better days, because there had been better days. Um, it made me regard better days um, only in only advisable or uh, useful if I could do something with those better days for the betterment of others as well. Um, In many ways, there I'm like my mother. Uh, She always retracted herself in front when when there were people, the people around her always had first pick. And of course, that is part, part of in my has been part in of my life as well but i have accepted it as a responsibility and at the same time as um, a blessing i could be starting from america starting from my mother and from from my husband my first husband i could be the one i want i felt i was i could give things away in the rest of the family my grandmother and grandfather, they didn't like to give things away except to, to people in the family. And I, I don't have that limited a world. And this is what probably made me open. 
Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting when you, because you make some fascinating comments about the difference between a young boy growing up and the thoughts that a young boy such as I would have had um, and the differences that you had as a young girl growing up. So, you know, this, you know, not having a hard shell, but, you know, don't you know be a nice girl. But, you know, there, there are certain limits to, to, to the niceness that you can exhibit. Well, in, in, in German, there's a, a, a braves Mädchen aus gutem Haus. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, that's that's what I was trained to be. Mm. And of course, I, I rebelled against it. That's why I always wanted to get out. And this is why that year in at Rice University in America, where I was me, I was I was Karen. I was not um, my maiden name was Pongs, that Pongs, that Pongs girl. Mm. You know, I, I wasn't part of a clan. I was me and I was accepted as me and I was doing well in terms of academic uh, output uh, as me. And that made me free and made me um, start to think, okay, you can contribute. If you can write papers like you did in, at Rice in a foreign country, in a foreign language, and get that um, those marks or those compliments, uh, you can contribute if you stay that way, open and analytical and um, approaching people, not uh, hitting them, but embracing them, yes. And I mean, in your in your opinion, how much has the world changed today? Because um, I mean, far too often, unfortunately, we you know, we do read articles about uh, abuse uh, aimed at women and girls, whether that's at school, uh, at home, in the workplace, online. You know, this is a, an issue which just doesn't seem to go away some reason no. uh, how much do you think it's changed do you think it's actually got better or has it got worse since uh, you know, the days that you were a child i i think uh the post-war period was a special time um everybody tried to pull themselves together and get going so um of course there were uh there was a crime against women there was um, negative uh, influences on women, on young girls. Uh, I know I had to fight uh, my father. I think I, I don't to this day, I don't know whether he was serious about it. But when I uh, was going to get from elementary school to high school, to gymnasium at age 10, um, he looked at me and he said, uh, you, you can't go. And he was serious about it. And I said, what do you mean? It cost, at that time, it cost 20 marks per month to go to high school. And I knew we we were poor, like everybody else. This was 1948, three years after the end of the war. And I knew that there was no, not much cash, but I had thought that at least I would get the chance to go to 
go on to the best school. And I started crying. And my father said, you have to remember there are two boys coming after you. My young uh, youngest brother at that point was one year old and the other one was eight years old. So there was a two period, two uh, years period between uh, him and me to go to high school. Um, I didn't understand that. And I went to my teacher who wanted his girl who was one day older than I am or is one day older than I am, to go to high school as well. So he had given us privileges that uh, others hadn't had. We could um, do math with uh, the kids three years above us or German or history or whatever with with other classes. And when I told him, um, my father said no for me not to go to high school. He, he simply looked at me and he said, can't be. And he went to talk to my father. And I don't know whether that was the uh, trigger for him to rethink. Uh, and from that time on, there was no question that I was going, going to enter the gymnasium with Zexta, the 10th grade. So um, that was being a woman, being a being female versus not being male. Mm. I mean, I mean, nowadays that particular academic struggle, I think, isn't so prevalent within Western society. Um, yeah. So there are differences. Perhaps there are elements where you know we have taken you know, important steps forward. But there are other ways in which we have stagnated as a society, it seems. Um, and, you know, it's so unfortunate that this struggle should still should persist. I mean, um, just recently, there have been so many examples of um, how women are treated differently. So, for example, with regards to some of the questions that are asked of, uh, you know, of um, candidates for being the, the chancellor. Mm-hmm. The, the, diff- the ease of questions that were given to one particular candidate uh, against the far more complicated and almost impossible to answer questions that were given to um, um, Mrs. Baerbock. So, you know, this level of uh, inequality persists uh, in, in every every stage of our society. Right. And I have... Uh, I have no answer, but I have a feeling that because women have gotten stronger and they have more possibilities and they have a surer place in society, that there is a backlash. Um, The male element is afraid and resents the fact that women are at least as strong as they And I think, uh, particularly in politics, the um, the female element is very strong in some parties. Um, in some parties, it is it has exceptional women, but very few. And when you look at uh, international conferences, uh, in many cases, it's mostly men. And um, 
they huddle together and they defend their position, of course. Yeah. In a way, I understand it. It makes me furious. Yeah, I mean, understanding something, being able to make observations as to the reason behind it, you're absolutely right, does not mean that you agree with it. And so, um, yeah, when we say humans are naturally conservative, there's a reason why we say that humans are naturally conservative. Uh, So they don't like change. That's because the powers that be don't want to change. They don't want to give up these seats. but then we have um, Goethe who says, das einzig beständige ist der Wechsel. Mm. The only consistent element is change. Yeah. And at my time of life right now, um, I had been so busy and so active until I was uh, 70, 71. Um, it hit me much later to see how much the world had changed, how much people had changed, how much my world had changed, how many people I had to let go because they died, to say, you can't say goodbye to everybody, not even emotionally. It it just over, is overwhelming at my phase in life, how many people around me are dying. That's that's change. That's change and have to accept it. And have to accept the changes in me. Yeah, Which, I mean, sobering, sobering thoughts, Karin. Um, you know, the old, oh, as you say, and rightfully so, the older you get, um, there's, it's not really a race, is it? But you, you tend to outlive, outrace uh, others. Um, and unfortunately, many of these are people who you've had uh, you know, affection for. Yes. You, in your life, when you do things like you do, or things like I do, I did, um, you get in, you touch upon many, many, many lives in one way or another. Intimately um, or non-intimately, from a distance, from a half distance, from working together, from uh, communicating about work together. You know, for instance, people I wrote reviews for their books for, um, they're gone. Um, So my world is getting, my, my world, my traditional world, is getting very small so it shrinks mm. and if i am not careful uh, i shrink or i let my world shrink and let in, uh, include less people and l- less events uh, and i don't mean uh, uh, entertainment events but uh, let the world pass by me and this is why I still read so much. And this is why I still watch television uh, or uh, do whatever brings me news of what is going on, because uh, I'm still part of it. Yeah. And, and also why you still it. talk to me, because um, just as, a, as in a, you know, <laughs> just as a side point, um, in other ways, your world is growing um, in that I, I had a look at the map today of the, um, the areas where this podcast is downloaded. 
And there are parts of the world that I have no understanding as to who would have followed us um, along this journey. I mean, there are Japan, China, Russia, um, different parts of India, Pakistan. Um, you know, it, it's wonderful to see, you know, obviously lots of places in, around the US, the UK, in Europe is quite a, a, a concentration of, of, uh, of downloads, but... Um, That's amazing because I never yeah. asked you, uh, to whom am I speaking beyond you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no idea, Karen, but... There are many, many cultures that are listening to you know, some of the, the, the episodes that we have produced, at least. And um, that's a wonderful thought. I, I, I hope um, only that they, um, you know, they enjoy listening to some of our musings. Uh, at least I know that I have thoroughly enjoyed all of uh, your, your, your thoughts I, uh, I as you've expressed it. Enjoyed and I am enjoying uh, talking to you. Because um, you are alive, I'm alive. We communicate. Our two worlds have a lot of interconnected, uh, interconnected roots, mm. which is very, very nice. Uh, and it goes beyond those who we are close to or in, uh, in terms of your family, uh, my friends. Mm. Um, but in terms of ideas, in terms of concerns, in terms of uh, emotions and fury. Absolutely. I think we're furious about the same things. <laughs> very, very similar. Yeah. And it's very nice to know you're not alone. No, absolutely not. Um, and I, I think, yeah, as we discussed, I mean, today will be a slightly shorter uh, episode than normal. Yes. But I mean, next time we'll try to extend it as much as we can. But that's a wonderful thought to, to conclude on. Um, and uh, I can only repeat the thought. You, know, you are not alone. We are not alone. Nobody is alone. No person is an island. Still, we can still laugh together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to the to coming to Cologne and laughing in your company as well. So Wonderful. I'm hopeful this will happen too. Um, thank yeah. you. Karin, thank you very much. Thank you again for your time, uh, your wonderful ideas. I look forward to the next idea for the next uh, podcast that we do, uh, because in, in many ways they are such uh, yeah uh, topics which are just purely natural. They are organic. They grow and yeah, they, they breathe. It's wonderful. So thank you again for this uh, suggestion for today, too. All the best and talk to you later. Two and a mic.